Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of mutilation, sexual violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Nowadays, there's a stereotype for serial killers. A violent, methodical murderer with a perversion for macabre rituals. A man who taunts authorities and courts fame. Cold-hearted, calculated, but crazy. The first known example of these modern killers appeared during the late 19th century, a time before the stereotype entered pop culture. Known sometimes as Leather Apron, the Whitechapel Murderer, or Jack the Ripper, the legendary monster became a media sensation overnight. He was the first of his kind. No one understood who they were dealing with. And it wasn't just because of the savage attacks, but the gruesome scenes he left. He routinely cut out victims' organs and posed them in the streets, ripe for the buzzards. It was more than just the work of a sick mind. The dissections had all the hallmarks of anatomical expertise. It seemed Jack knew what he was doing, which led some to suspect his kills were medical. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and it's time to meet Jack the Ripper. I'm glad to assist Alistair with some medical insight into the story of this iconic killer whose legend and mystery, after 150 years, continues to live on. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the notorious serial killer Jack the Ripper. In 1888, he killed at least five women, possibly more. He's never been identified, but many believe he may have been a doctor, surgeon, or midwife. Today, we'll follow medical investigators as they explore his crime scenes. Next time, we'll try to solve a century-old mystery and determine who committed the Whitechapel murders. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the evening of October 16th, 1888, George Lusk opened his mail. Among the usual bills and postcards, he found a small cardboard box with his name on it, but not his house number. Lusk examined it, wondering what it contained. As Whitechapel Vigilance Committee president, he'd been vocal about the recent spate of murders in town, and the papers had publicized it. A practical joke to spook him wouldn't be unexpected. And Lusk wouldn't have any reason to take this package seriously if not for what he found when he opened it. Half a preserved human kidney and he knew exactly who it was from. Mere months earlier, it's unlikely Lusk would have attributed the gory gift to any one person. His neighborhood, Whitechapel, was practically a criminal epicenter. The low-income East London borough was densely populated, with fewer than 550 police officers for roughly 76,000 residents. Among them, criminals ran rampant. Dark and dirty streets made it all too easy for them to sneak up on victims, commit crimes, and evade capture. But crime wasn't the only hazard of living in Whitechapel. Poverty left residents' health vulnerable too. Health inequities sadly persist even centuries beyond today's story. Poverty impacts health outcomes because it limits access to quality care or sometimes any care at all. Physician access, even today, is limited. And back in the late 19th century, there was a dearth of qualified practitioners. The impoverished have forever been unable to access state-of-the-art diagnostics and therapeutics. Instead, they were reliant on medical advice driven by untrained, financially motivated practitioners peddling potions and promises. Where we see violent crime, we will also see violent traumatic injuries that are often life-threatening. Furthermore, access to an emergency facility didn't exist in the 1880s. 
where we find overcrowding, we see an increase in poor sanitation and more crime. Basic resources become scarce and infections from poor sanitation are common. These problems of health inequality from poverty and overcrowded communities were much more common in the late 19th century, and these problems continue to undermine health care in these vulnerable communities. Sex workers were among the most affected. Though the practice was technically legal, law enforcement offered little protection for women when the job got dangerous. Perhaps that's why Emma Elizabeth Smith received no attention when she was brutally attacked in April 1888. Bleeding from stab wounds, the 45-year-old had to crawl her way to the nearest hospital. Once there, Emma claimed she'd been robbed by three men. Yet, many theorize that she was Jack the Ripper's first target, possibly because it's a common misperception that Jack targeted sex workers, which Emma was. Ultimately, Emma would never have a chance to weigh in on the possibility. She died soon after her intake on April 4th, 1888. Four months later, on the night of August 7th, Martha Tabram was found in a pool of blood. Like Emma, Martha had been stabbed on the streets of Whitechapel. But her killer hadn't stolen anything, and the attack was far more violent. A coroner noted the attacker had used a dagger to perforate Martha's spleen, stomach, liver, lungs, and heart 39 times. Investigators considered a soldier Martha may have dated, but dropped the lead when they realized she was married. They seemed wary to imply the woman had been having an affair, Victorian morals muddling genuine detective work. So Martha's case remained unsolved. No one in Whitechapel had the foresight to understand how famous her death would become. Except, perhaps, Martha's killer. Because as the summer of 1888 closed, they seemed to be after a taste of recognition. A little over three weeks after Martha Tabram's death, around 3.45 a.m. on August 31st, 1888, a pair of horse-drawn carriage drivers found a 43-year-old unhoused woman named Mary Ann Nichols, or Polly, as she liked to be called, Polly lay sprawled in the street, and though it was too dark for the drivers to make out any injuries, one of them believed she was hurt and unconscious, so they sent for help. Within minutes, a constable joined them. By the light of his lamp, he saw extensive slash wounds and blood-drenched clothing. Polly was dead. A closer look revealed that her throat was cut so deeply she was nearly beheaded. Further, five of Polly's teeth had been knocked out and her genitalia and abdomen had been stabbed with a sharp knife similar to what a doctor might have on hand, not the dagger that killed Martha Tabram. In spite of the brutal wounds, Polly's corpse gave no indication that she'd struggled. Apparently, the attacker slit her throat then stabbed her torso right after, killing her instantly. 
Killing someone quickly requires an understanding of where the body's vital organs are located. Slitting the throat requires a precision strike and demands some understanding of human anatomy. The windpipe and carotid arteries take considerable force to sever. To ensure the victim doesn't offer any resistance requires knowledge of where the incisions are directed. Multiple well-targeted puncture wounds would be necessary for a murderous success. These crimes in the late 19th century required some experience and training. Whoever killed Polly knew exactly what they were doing. They also seemed pretty confident that they wouldn't be caught. There was no sign that Polly had been moved after death. Apparently, the murderer butchered her right there in the street without drawing any attention. It's likely Polly never even had the chance to scream. The brutality of it all surprised the police and the press. Sensing the bloody story would sell papers, reporters descended on Whitechapel, asking locals who they thought committed the crime. Many residents spoke about Leather Apron, a man nicknamed for the smock he always wore. For some time now, sex workers had warned one another not to go home with him. He'd beaten and robbed several, but he'd never been caught. By that first week of September, local outlets named him as a likely culprit in Polly Nichols' murder. The Sheffield and Rotherham Independent declared, There is a man who goes by the name of the Leather Apron, who has more than once attacked unfortunate and defenseless women. They may have been jumping to conclusions, sensationalizing an isolated homicide to boost their own sales. But the people of Whitechapel had reason to want answers, especially when it became clear that the attacker wasn't stopping. About a week later, another body was found with all the same telltale signs, meaning Whitechapel had a serial killer. Coming up, Leather Apron gets a brand new title. The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, Visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On August 31, 1888, Polly Nichols was found dead on a street in Whitechapel, London. 
Many suspected she'd been attacked by an unidentified man called Leather Apron, who tormented the neighborhood's sex workers. Although Polly likely wasn't in this profession, she may have been Leather Apron's first kill. Or she might have been the second or third. We do know she wasn't his last. Just over a week after her death, he found his next target in a widow named Annie Chapman. Deeply impoverished, she suffered from alcoholism and tuberculosis. Her final night alive, Annie squatted in a boarding house kitchen, sporting a black eye from a brawl she'd gotten into earlier that week. Around 1.45 a.m. on September 8th, the proprietors threw her out. Much like Polly Nichols, she couldn't pay for a room. Hours later, sometime between 3.45 and 5.45 a.m., her bloody body was found in the street, a few feet behind a private home. She was missing two brass rings, suggesting she'd been robbed. As with Polly, her abdomen was slashed open, her throat cut, and there were no signs of struggle. But there was something else. It may not have drawn attention, if not for the rumors flying around Whitechapel. Near Annie's body, a discarded, bloody piece of leather apron. If the criminal wanted to make a statement, this seemed to confirm suspicions that the man by the moniker Leather Apron had killed both Polly and Annie. And this time, he'd put even more effort into decorating his scene. Annie had been disemboweled. Her intestines had been pulled from her torso and placed to the right of her body. But the killer hadn't cut them out. They were still attached to the rest of her digestive tract. The intestines are a 25-foot tube, and they're divided into the small and large intestine. The length of the small intestine is roughly 9 to 16 feet, while the colon measures around 5 feet. The small intestines fold on themselves many times, whereas the colon surrounds the small intestines in an almost question mark shape. The intestines are attached to the abdominal wall by a thick membrane called the mesentery, which is what prevents them from simply being pulled out of your abdomen. To remove the intestines would require one to know where the mesentery was specifically attached. How Jack was able to remove Annie's viscera remains a mystery, not only to how he knew to do this, but also who he actually was. Either way, he was evidently pushing the boundaries of his process, growing more ruthless with his mutilations. And given the aftermath's unique layout, investigators sought an expert medical opinion on Annie before they disturbed it. Dr. Phillips, the division's surgeon, arrived by 6.30 a.m. He determined that Annie's uterus and parts of her bladder and vagina had been cut out, work he thought couldn't have been formed by a layperson. The killer seemed familiar with anatomy. A second coroner, Wynne Baxter, made a similar observation, declaring, No unskilled person could have known where to find the uterus or have recognized it when it was found. Coroner Baxter was now the third medical expert to suggest the Whitechapel murderer had advanced anatomical knowledge. 
I'll offer a fourth opinion and is consistent with the three previous conclusions. Hysterectomies are complicated procedures. Anyone untrained wouldn't be able to easily identify the uterus amongst the myriad pelvic structures, and even less likely in an anatomical field that has been distorted by random slashing and slicing. The major problems in performing a hysterectomy involve the possibility in damaging its surrounding organs. To minimize the risk of these complications, specialized surgical instruments are required, and these were certainly not available in the late 19th century. The blade in question was a blade six to eight inches long and very sharp, like a doctor's knife. And the killer knew how to use it. But even with these medical cues and the piece of leather apron left at the scene, the police didn't have any meaningful leads on who the killer actually was. Terrified, the people of Whitechapel took matters into their own hands, putting together civilian patrols, comprised mainly of the low-income laborers who lived in East London. Young men walked the streets in pairs or guarded key locations where they believed their villain might strike next. They urged volunteer vigilantes to carry sticks and whistles so they could defend themselves or signal for help. Other locals, including builder and decorator George Lusk, formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. They raised funds and offered a monetary reward for any information leading to the Whitechapel murderer's arrest. They weren't trying to infringe on the work of the real detectives. If anything, they were trying to help. And after mounting pressures from a neighborhood in panic, authorities arrested five suspects that September. Among them, a barber, a cook, and two butchers. The barber pulled a knife after an argument with a coffee seller. The cook had a suspicious injury. He claimed a woman in the street had bitten his hand. Both butchers had symptoms of mental health conditions and behaved erratically. But none of these men had medical training. The fifth arrest was a 38-year-old shoe trimmer with the last name of Pizer, who came under suspicion when an inspector suggested he was Leather Apron. Papers leapt at the theory. And though Pizer went into hiding at his brother's house, he was soon caught and jailed by police. But he didn't stay behind bars long. Within a matter of days, he provided airtight alibis for the nights Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman died. Pizer might have been Leather Apron, who routinely robbed and beat sex workers, but he wasn't the Whitechapel murderer. So the clue left at Annie's crime scene may have actually been a cleverly placed decoy meant to throw investigators, the culprit's way of having fun with them. If true, the games didn't end there. In the fall of 1888, the real killer wrote a series of letters. The first arrived at the Central News Agency on September 27, 1888, nearly three weeks after Annie Chapman's death. Full of misspellings and grammatical errors, the message was addressed to The Boss, Central News Office in London City, and opened with Dear Boss, the vague introduction and the numerous typos suggested Jack wasn't very knowledgeable about press rooms or writing norms. 
but he still got his point across. I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off. And then came the signature at the bottom, introducing an alias that would go down in history books. Jack the Ripper. The reporters questioned whether the note was the real deal, so the newsroom passed it along to Scotland Yard. Just one day after that, they got their answer. A new victim, a woman whose earlobes had deep slices in them just like their Jack the Ripper writer had warned. And worse, she wasn't the only victim. On the night of September 29, 1888, Jack murdered two women. Elizabeth Stride's body was found around 1 a.m. on September 30th, while Catherine Eddowes, who went by Kate, was discovered roughly 45 minutes later. Like the Ripper's previous victims, Elizabeth and Kate were vulnerable women. Elizabeth was an occasional sex worker, while Kate was a victim of domestic violence and suffered from alcoholism. Consistent with the Ripper's established MO, both women's bodies were posed in the street. Both their throats were slashed. There was no sign either had struggled. But the crime scenes differed in important ways. First, Elizabeth's corpse wasn't mutilated like the other victims. Aside from the cut across her throat, there were no significant injuries found anywhere on her body. However, Reports did suggest that her dress was undone near the top. Perhaps the killer had intended to slice open her abdomen, but he'd been interrupted. After all, her corpse was still warm when she was discovered. Victims of violent crimes are rarely found warm because the body cools rather quickly. Somewhere between 8 and 36 hours, the body will be stiff and cold. Several factors influence how a body cools, including weight, clothing, any pre-existing illnesses, and the ambient temperature around the deceased. Elizabeth Stride hadn't been dead very long when she was found, so perhaps the killer had been stopped mid-attack. And if Jack's assault was interrupted, it would explain why he felt the need to strike again. Regardless, Kate Eddowes got the worst of it. Her corpse was missing her uterus and her intestines had been pulled out and coiled beside her body, just like Annie Chapman. But unlike past victims, Kate's kidney had been removed. What's more, Kate's crime scene offered something the authorities could use in their investigation, a specific timeline one that confirmed just how extensive the murderer's anatomical knowledge was. Coming up, police analyze the first concrete timing of a Whitechapel murder. Now, back to the story. By September 30th, 1988, Jack the Ripper had killed at least four women. But the latest, Kate Eddowes, was spotted alive shortly before her death. 
This meant the authorities had a concrete time window to map out the progression of the attack from the initial lure to the final stab. It helped police estimate exactly how long it took the Ripper to kill and butcher Kate. At about 1.30 a.m., a constable patrolled Mitre Square in Whitechapel. He didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Around the same time, a man named Joseph Lavender passed a corridor that led to Mitre Square. Near its entrance, he spotted Kate. Approximately 10 minutes later, Kate's body turned up in Mitre Square, dead. This meant Jack cornered his victim on the square, killed her, and removed her kidney and uterus, all in under a quarter of an hour. Removing a kidney or a nephrectomy is complicated. The kidneys are two small bean-shaped organs in the back of the abdomen, so harvesting them requires going through the intestines, which takes time and expertise. In a therapeutic nephrectomy, several complications can occur, even in good hands, including bleeding, infection, and damaging the other tissues around them. These nephrectomies take on average three hours, so a 10-minute event would have been extremely messy. And, I'm just guessing, not a great job. Jack the Ripper would have had to have some training to expedite this procedure in 10 minutes. What we do know is that our criminal had highly specialized abilities. The removal of Kate Eddowes' kidney astonished investigators. While before they'd assumed their criminal moved swiftly, this confirmed an expertise that couldn't belong to just anyone. But another aspect of this double crime intrigued police even more. They were able to secure a physical description. As we noted before, Kate was spotted minutes before her death by a man named Joseph Lavender. But Joseph reported that when he saw her, Kate wasn't alone. She was speaking to a man of medium height and build, around 30 years of age, and with a small, fair moustache. This seemed to be the first time any eyewitnesses had given a credible description of the Ripper. Now, the people of Whitechapel had someone specific to fear. They didn't know his name, but they could picture his build and his face and they were getting a clearer picture of the way he thought, too. The day after Kate and Elizabeth's bodies were found, the Whitechapel murderer wrote yet another taunting letter to the Central News Agency. It referenced the dual homicide as a double event and thanked the recipients for holding his letter till he got to work again. The killer seemed to enjoy taunting the investigators. Unfortunately, he wasn't the only one. Fraudsters began writing their own messages to the press, throwing a wrench into Scotland Yard investigations. One journalist produced an alleged note from the Ripper on October 5th, about a week after the missive to the Central News Agency. The note writer complained he was being blamed for murders he didn't commit, that one of the recent victims wasn't really killed by Jack. But many suspected it was a hoax, likely written by the reporter himself in hopes of selling more papers. After all, the public had become fascinated with the so-called Autumn of Terror. This may have been London's first real experience with true crime entertainment as we now know it. 
But the onslaught of misinformation, hoaxes, and fake notes made it harder to tell fact from fiction. Take George Lusk, who'd helped form the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. On October 16, 1888, he received a plain-looking package in the mail. The sender had delivered him a letter addressed, From Hell, with a partial kidney. Whoever sent it claimed they'd eaten the other half. It was almost too grim to believe. Still, Lusk couldn't help but wonder if this organ had come from the Ripper's most recent victim, Kate Eddowes. She had been missing a kidney when police found her corpse, but then she died on September 30th, a full two weeks before Lusk received the parcel. Surely the part would be rotting by now, unless it had been preserved in something like alcohol. By the looks of it, this was entirely possible. So, while skeptical, Lusk and at least one other trusted acquaintance passed the organ along to a doctor just to be on the safe side. That physician, in turn, sought guidance from London Hospital's doctor, Thomas Openshaw. Openshaw confirmed, first and foremost, that the kidney was human. It was also noted that the deceased had been in the advanced stage of Bright's disease. This finding connected the kidney and Kate a lot more clearly. Bright's disease doesn't have any one specific cause, but in the 19th century, physicians often thought the condition was somehow related to alcoholism, and Kate had a history of overindulging in drink. In 1833, Richard Bright described a failing kidney in terms that we now call glomerulonephritis. The glomerulus is a structure in the kidney that acts as a filter, and when these become damaged, our kidneys begin to fail. There is an interesting relationship between Bright's disease and alcohol. Light alcohol consumption actually has beneficial effects, whereas moderate intake seems safe. Kidney failure significantly increases when people consume more than 18 drinks per week. Preserving a kidney in alcohol wouldn't affect the chronic changes that develop from prolonged exposure. A connection between Kate's alcohol abuse and her Bright's disease was unclear. But if the organ wasn't Kate's, it's tough to imagine where else this partial human kidney could have come from. Ultimately, in an era before DNA science or genetic testing, there was no definitive way to link the organ to Kate. But it was enough to convince many investigators that Lusk's delivery from hell was real. And even though the killer hadn't taken a life in weeks, the gruesome gift put Scotland Yard under even greater public pressure. Newspapers were filled with letters to the editors demanding more police in Whitechapel, more frequent patrols, and more vigilance. For over a month, Londoners had advocated for the officials to offer a monetary reward for the Ripper's capture or tips about his identity. But investigators had declined these requests too. They thought such an offer would inspire false leads and hoaxes, like the flurry that popped up in the press. So the public turned once more to grassroots efforts. Self-proclaimed vigilantes watched the neighborhood. One, who wandered the streets on the evening of October 21st, mused, 
There was not a corner of Whitechapel, no matter how obscure, that was left unwatched last Saturday night. But not even the regular patrols and heavy attention could deter Jack the Ripper. If anything, the watchful eyes posed a worthy challenge for his next slaying. On October 29, 1888, someone claiming to be Jack the Ripper left a letter for Dr. Openshaw, the physician who confirmed the human origins of the mailed kidney. This new message didn't include any human organs, but it did carry one especially alarming line. I guess I will be on the job soon and will send you another bit of innards. In other words, the Whitechapel killer had murder on his mind once again. If the police didn't hurry up and solve the case, another woman would die. The clock was ticking. Next week, we'll follow the police as they try to prevent Jack the Ripper's final kill. Then we'll re-examine the evidence to determine which London-based doctors may be the Whitechapel murderer. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Brandon Rizzuto, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murdoch.